back with the Fresh Expressions podcast. I'm your host, Heather Delod, and I have joining me today... It's Gannon Sims. Thanks, Heather. <laughs> Gannon Sims. Yeah, that other guy on the screen there. Yeah, it's good to be back with you. Um, we have a conversation today with two of our uh, Fresh Expressions North America team um, that focus primarily on the, the Dinner Church and the Dinner Church Collective in uh, John Davis and Verlin Fosner. And their new book, uh, A Trowel and Sword, that uh, was released recently, which really focuses on really prayer um, practices on the front lines of mission. And um, and I, I loved listening in on this conversation, and, and I know that you're going to share with us kind of some of the highlights, um, Gannon, so, so folks' ears will be uh, listening for, for that. But um, I know that in my... Um, in my ministry and in uh, kind of learning from, from Verlin along the way, he, one of the things he shares in, um, in his training is that uh, our dinner churches are often places where we need uh, street fighting Jesus, um, hmm. a whole different kind of Jesus. And um, then, then maybe we are accustomed to in our traditional practices and understandings. Um, and, and they, they make the point in this conversation that, that maybe our, um, our traditional practices aren't up to the challenge of really uh, the front lines and um, the opposition that we often face in these uh, great commission environments that we find ourselves in. So um, really what, what was what was kind of the big standouts to you in this conversation, Gannon? Well, thanks, Heather. I think you know so often our 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 traditional modes of praying aren't working because they're a bit timid, and they're timid mm. in a, a, a large part due to the fact that you know I think a good many Christians have experienced uh, bold, tenacious praying done. Um, Badly or manipulatively, mm. or um, you know, and so there's there. I think there there are mm. people carrying around baggage from a prayer that is um, hasn't maybe been helpful. So then you kind of domesticate it, um, and mm. then it's it's grossly ineffective. So what what we've got here in the in the beauty of this conversation and the, the fresh expressions vision from day one was it was ecumenical. So it's what are the gifts that we have to share with each other across the uh, the church, and so you know Verlin is coming to us from uh, an Assemblies of God background, but then even in his own tradition, he's kind of pioneered uh, this dinner church movement. Then John is an Episcopal priest. And an Episcopal priest who had, I think, a season as a youth minister in a more uh, Pentecostal-leaning church. So, so you've got the the fire and the the fireplace um, in this conversation. Mm-hmm. I think you know prayer has got to have a fireplace to burn inside of. So, so you got John in the book bringing in the great tradition, bringing in the book of common prayer, bringing in the fact that you can boldly pray prayers that have been written centuries ago. And then you got yeah. Verlin coming in from a revivalist tradition, a tradition where he saw his, his father in deep prayer, his grandparents in deep prayer um, who were kind of in the, in the revival movement. So it's a really nice pairing of, of two colleagues uh, mm. who are able to sort of communicate something. I think there's something in this for everybody. Uh, for your uh, regular church prayer team, uh, to your person who's suspicious about praying, uh, to 
your person who is a bold prayer but has never thought about you know the Psalms as as instructive for, for prayer or or written prayers as instructive. So it's a it's a great all around conversation. I'm glad to to share it with our audience. Yeah, and 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 the trowel, I guess, being those 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 things that we hinge uh, our faith on, and some of, some of the practices that so many so many or many of us might be familiar with, and then the sword being those bold, audacious um, prayers that are uh, that are are represented really by the story in Nehemiah. Yes, right that that they're they're tending to the wall and and. Um, and, and fixing the wall, but they're also fighting at the same time no, they're, uh, or they're prepared, ready, prepared to fight. And, and so it yes. is, it's a, it's a, it's a tension that we live in. And I think that that tension is a really great place to live. And that's mm. where God is calling the church to be right now. So um, again, glad to share this episode on the Fresh Expressions podcast with uh, Verlin Fosner and John Davis. We want to welcome you back to the Fresh Expressions podcast. I'm Gannon Sims, and I'm pleased to be joined by my dear brothers and colleagues, uh, John Davis and Verlin Fosner. Verlin uh, and John both work on our uh, Dinner Church Initiative. Um, John is one of our, our chief logisticians also on the Fresh Expressions team, and both of them have a deep uh, insight and experience uh, related to prayer ministry. John's been uh, an Episcopal priest for many years, ran a retreat center. Uh, Verlin, uh, of course, uh, led uh, an Assemblies of God, a church in Seattle that then uh, pivoted into a, a network of dinner churches. And, um, you know, in their experience, they've sort of, of combined forces uh, on a book that uh, I highly recommend um, picking up, taking a look at. Uh, the book is titled A Trowel and a Sword. A Trowel and a Sword, looking at prayer strategy uh, for those of us in ministry who are on the front lines of uh, mission and evangelization. So, um, Verlin, John, thank you for joining us. Thanks for sharing your time with us. Good to be here, Gannon. Yes, great to be here. So I want to talk a little bit first just about the the genesis of of this book. I mean, some people, uh, you know, pray to great effect and other people are intimidated by prayer, so they, they, they barely pray at all. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, kind of... Tell us a little bit about your early experiences of prayer and what caused you to be leaders who pray, because we know we, we need a Christian leaders who pray now more than ever. Yeah. Um, well, for me, I think, John, first of all, it's a real honor to link forces with John to have a, an Episcopal priest and a Pentecostal pastor deciding to take on the topic of spiritual warfare in real time is, has <laughs> been a blast. Uh, and he brings such a rich, long, uh, heritage and tradition of prayer practices into this manuscript. And, um, and of course, uh, the Pentecostal flavor is what I have brought, albeit I would say, 
you know, the Holy Spirit with overalls on rather than the all dressed up one on Sunday, mm-hmm. uh, which is a part of what we have practiced. Uh, but we just realized the more we got out with our dinner churches and we're really out on the front lines doing church for the secular lost, um, our, it became obvious that the prayer practices that we had pushed into place uh, back in our traditional settings were actually um, not up to the challenge. It was a little bit like bringing a knife to the proverbial gunfight. Um, and um, we, we said, wow, we've, we've prayed an awful lot, but it's always been back on the supply line, you know, the version of church that is mostly done for the already's. Uh, and now out on the front lines where we're doing church for the not yet's and in a highly secular environment like our city uh, in Seattle, uh, we, we, we realized, man, we're, we're dealing with people that are starting a spiritual path and starting a spiritual journey from such crazy, dark and broken places, as well as just the, the neighborhood impact that we needed to learn uh, a new understanding of prayer. Um, and uh, we recognized that, you know, our way of doing church was now kicking in the strong man's front door uh, and bringing people out that he'd worked really hard on oppressing uh, and suppressing. And we were now moving them into freedom. So it didn't take long for a genuine sense of spiritual warfare to become real and on a level that we certainly were not trained for. So that was our impetus into a front lines understanding uh, of uh, of prayer that we had to begin to learn, learn afresh. Yeah, and I, I think for me, uh, once again, I was honored to work with Verlin on this project and, and it tapped a lot of the things that that I've experienced in my uh, spiritual journey uh, in my life, um, you know, there are all types of prayer. You know, there um, we do as a, coming from a liturgical sacramental side, you know, we have regular intercessions as a part of our service every week. And those are sort of the supply line kinds of prayers, you know, where we pray for those that are sick. We pray for the, uh, those kinds of things. And sometimes that enters into the spiritual warfare kind of side of things. But, to be honest, I think that what this really did it, it brought to mind for me are those moments that I've had in my life where you're really uh, coming to dispel the darkness of the world. There's a difference yeah. between sort of typical intercessions and and the sort of the frontline missional prayer. You know, the, the prayers that we sort of when we think of Second Corinthians 10, the, the prayers that are mighty to the tearing down of strongholds and I've got several stories of those kinds of experiences, some around the retreat center, some around other missional kind of moments that I've had. But I think the thing is, there is a call upon the church to be on that front line, to be mm-hmm. in that missional posture where we are, uh, in a sense, extending the kingdom, advancing the kingdom into this world. And that's going to, we're going to get opposition, spiritual opposition to that. And I think we, yeah. sometimes we don't recognize that or the church, you know, sort of, downplays that idea. But in my life, I found it to be very real. And I found that when I pray those types of prayers, it does yield good kingdom fruit. And that's, uh, I think, part of why uh, this book was written and uh, to, yeah. to sort of call people to that kind of prayer. Yeah. In fact, John and I, in talking early on, we were just becoming somewhat perturbed at how uh, uh, how incapable even our own people were 
uh, at dealing with uh, the front lines of mission and the front lines of the gospel. Uh, and so it was out of that frustration almost, I think, that drove us together and then drove us into the research on this book. So talk a little bit about that. For somebody who's unfamiliar with the the concept of, for, they've never thought about mission or the gospel being a f- frontline activity. They haven't maybe thought about uh, the kind of prayer that um, prepares the soil or lays the groundwork. Kind of, kind of walk us back a little bit for somebody who's just this is a they're walking into a conversation. Help kind of catch them up to to how you got to um, be bold in uh, praying in this way. Well, I think we have to face um, the, shall I say, the missteps or the kinds of prayer that are good for the supply line congregations, uh, but they are actual missteps if you try to use those to actually advance the kingdom and uh, win people from the strong man's grip, so to speak, to use that scriptural metaphor there. Um, and, uh, we, as we just really begin to take a look at our prayer practices and our prayer lives, we said, well, this stuff is really good for us. Our understandings of prayer were great at edifying us, but they were not good at actually stepping into the darkness and pushing back the enemy and literally contending for the souls of people and actually changing the neighborhood even, so to speak, um, that we were called to serve. And so we we just kind of in some sort of a little simple rubric, very simple, we get far deeper than this in the book, but, uh, but prayers that are edification-based are wonderful, but they're just not the ones that you're, that you're going to see great progress on the front lines. On the front lines, those are pretty bold prayers. We're not worried about uh, praying in a way way that that, uh, sounds like we're telling God what to do, uh, because out there where the bullets are flying, it's, no, no, we've been sent out here, uh, and we expect heaven to answer, and we need heaven to send reinforcements here, and there, there must be some interventions from heaven, or else we're left here outmanned and outgunned. And but but the fact that you've sent us here means this stuff is coming and we will absolutely expect it. And we're going to pray boldly and we're going to knock on heaven's doors like we know that stuff is going to come out of heaven. The inbreaking kingdom um, of, of, of God is going to pour down and this uprising kingdom of darkness is going to have to run. Uh, because when it comes down to the conflict, we know from the cross and we know from the resurrection uh, and we know from a multitude of verses that that when we take our stand, the enemy flees, doesn't just saunter away, but flees. There is a very definite authority and empowerment that the church holds that we'd been under practiced at using. Um, and so we'd been in all kinds of uh, all kinds of prayer, all kinds of edification type prayers but now we were needing to learn those other kind that uh, that were a lot more 
uh, uh, power of heaven pouring down and pushing back the uprising kingdom of darkness. And we're very clearly living between those two realities, the inbreaking kingdom of God and the uprising kingdom of darkness. That is what life is like on planet Earth. Uh, for those of us who are believers and our leaders uh, in Jesus's church. And, um, and in some places, it's more pronounced than others. You can see the darkness very prevalent in any neighborhood in my city. You just walk down, you can see it eating up a person's life that's being swallowed up in drug addiction right over there and alcoholism over there. And there's a domestic struggle going on between that guy and his girlfriend right over there. And it's just all right in front of our face. Um, so there's no there's no doubt that the uprising kingdom of darkness is very real and winning a great lot uh, in the very neighborhoods that we're called to win back for the kingdom of God, the inbreaking kingdom of God, and all of that order to flow in. So, so that uh, that is what the the place of prayer needed to become for us. You know, and I, I think it's interesting that. Um, the, one of the earliest gospel missions is, you know, we can read that in Luke chapter 10. And that mission begins with prayer. Yep. You know, uh, it says, yep. after, the Lord, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him in every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send, therefore, mm-hmm. to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you like lamb, lambs among wolves. And I think it's what a couple of things that I think are, that are interesting about that call is that this gospel mission begins with prayer. It begins with this asking the Lord of the harvest to provide for the mission. And, and that's yeah. not just a supply line thing, but because there's this sort of warning of I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. And mm-hmm. so there's, there is a tension that is coming. There is a, a, a confrontation that is coming between light and darkness. And, and yeah. I think, the other thing that I find interesting about this is that this is the only other prayer that we have vocabulary for. You know, we're given the Lord's Prayer in terms of a vocabulary to, to pray the, that, that prayer. But this is the only other one that we're given. We're told to pray in lots of ways and di- different parables that Jesus tells. But we're in this, we're given a vocabulary, pray for the Lord of the harvest. Um, right. I remember as, uh, and Gannon, you and I were a part of the, part of this when we were in Wyoming and I was actually he- headed off to my next gig. Um, I was driving through wheat fields in Idaho and it was harvest time and I had never seen anything like this. Just the, 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 we're talking about, there were places where harvest had already taken place and there were bales of wheat, but I would drive for miles and for as far as I could see these golden wheat fields. And I just, whenever I think of this text, I always think of, of that, that drive through Idaho and that how plentiful the harvest was. And I think that's part of the call is that we have to realize that there is a mission. Jesus calls us to mission. That's why we're here, to be light in darkness, to be salt, uh, to be the salt of the earth, you know, and to, to do those kinds of things. So I just think that, that even in this first early mission in the gospel, we have this, that it begins with prayer. And that should say something to us. Yeah. So talk us through, John, you know, your, tell us a story, give us an example. I mean, the harvest is, is here. Like, I, I think a lot of, a lot of folks uh, in the church feel like they've got to labor for the harvest, but in fact, it's sending out laborers into the harvest, to harvest, right. <laughs> not to like 
go work, work harder. Um, so you know, give us an example, you know, if from your, from your life, you said you've, you've had instances where you've had to, you know, pray bold prayers. What's, what's something that comes to mind? Well, the one that lately you know, sort of comes to mind and um, is when I was a director at the retreat center. And uh, regardless of whatever had happened there, there was some, there was uh, a, on a level that the retreat center had been compromised spiritually. Mm. Um, there had been groups that had come on that campus that were antichrist, that were cults, that were those kinds of things. And as I discovered that, you know, as the, when I first took the role as the executive director, I just knew that we had to pray. I knew that we had, we had, it was different from, and I would draw this sort of draws the distinction between the sort of typical intercessions and tearing down of strongholds. Because in some ways, I really feel that our campus, the very land itself had been compromised spiritually. And uh, there were strongholds, things had been welcomed, things had been invited in. And we, in a sense, had to pray a different kind of prayer than just, you know, bless us, Lord. But it was more like we come against these these powers of darkness in the name of Jesus. And we tore down strongholds, you know, with weapons that are mighty uh, to do that, that were given. Sort of thinking of the Second uh, Corinthians 10, mm-hmm. 3 through 5 kind of yeah. text there. And I think what we saw over time was that God redeemed that property, that God redeemed that space and really made it a sacred space and, and began to dwell there in a, in a fresh and new way. As we, um, you know, we're always going to be in spiritual warfare. That's why we're given the instructions like in Ephesians 6 about, you know, put on the whole armor of God mm-hmm. and stand right. firm and those kinds of things. But we're always going to be in spiritual warfare. But sometimes we're going to be up against things where there is a deeper darkness, where there is almost a, uh, in a sense, I get this picture in some ways that there's rights or a deed has been given over. And we have to, in Jesus' name, mm-hmm. take that back. And so that was the experience at, at this retreat center. And we saw God redeem that property. And all of a sudden it became a sacred space, a thin place of God's dwelling. And and people would comment to us like, I don't know what it is when I drive on this campus. There's just something that is so peaceful here. I feel the Lord's presence. And that was um, that was a common sort of thing for people to say uh, about about uh, this work that I was involved with. Talk a little bit, uh, both of you, about um, kind of how, how you, how did you learn how to pray? Do you remember? I know, Verlin, you talk a lot in a book about just the influence of, of uh, your father, um, family, and uh, <clears throat> learning to pray, yeah. witnessing, you know, <laughs> them wrapped up in blankets and you knew, well, <laughs> they, were, they were praying. Um, yeah. That might not be the experience a lot of kids grow up with. Well, I am intrigued at Jesus's teaching about prayer, of which he spends a couple of verses giving some text, and then gives a whole bunch of verses about the attitude behind prayer. Mm. And sometimes it's not about the practice as much as it is that that soulish, driving, lion-like heart that's that's behind it. You know, yeah. it's the the fervent prayer of righteous people that availeth much. There is um, this 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 
this repeating theme about boldness and coming boldly to the throne of of, of God and grace. And uh, there is there is an attitude behind prayer. There is a I guess it's an awareness of the authority that has been given us. That if we pray with that awareness and that belief, then we pray different, and our prayer avails much, yeah. much, much more than if it's it's sort of an edifying kind of a a passive. There's almost like a passive sense. Hey, Lord, you know, if it kind of be your will, kind of like it, kind of be great if you'd you know um, have some sort of impact on my brother-in-law who isn't really looking to you. Right? You know, we kind of pray so hesitantly. And those, I think, are, are fine. There's certainly a yieldedness to the will of the Lord that is necessary. But there comes a time when we need to really bust out the boldness, too. And we need to arise with this fiery confidence that, hey, a good father is not going to feed his children serpents. He's going to mm-hmm. feed them bread. bread. So pray like you know this stuff, yeah. like you're expecting. And I, there is one verse that we spent a fair amount of time on in the book. Uh, about Jesus talking about giving us the keys Mm -hmm. to the kingdom, that whatever we choose to use those keys on down here, all of heaven will go to work on whatever we, whatever doors we're shutting, that's fine. They'll let them remain shut in the heavenlies and that that we open, they'll come flying open. And that's where the interventions of heaven is going to come. That's where the inbreaking kingdom is going to inbreak. Uh, on the basis of those prayers. And, and I just, I, there's a lot of people who don't even realize that the keys have been placed in their pocket already by virtue of their simple first steps in salvation to actually go up to big doors in heaven and pull those keys out and open those doors and expect God to come out and do stuff. And we might not know exactly how, what, when, where, that's all sort of the, the mm-hmm. divine part of the picture. But we do know that if we don't open those doors, there is uh, a self-inhibitation on the part of heaven. And if we do open those doors in prayer, there is a release. There is there is something that happens. And when we when we get that straight in our head that Jesus gave us those keys for a reason, they're already in our pocket. They weren't supposed to stay in our pocket. They're supposed to come out for a reason. We're supposed to open big doors and expect big answers. Once we get that straight, I think the form of prayer isn't as important as what we understand we're actually doing when we're praying. We're opening big doors in heaven for a big God to come through and do some big stuff. That's why we're praying. Um, so that's, that's I think, probably at its core. But you're right. I did see many examples of my father and, and, uh, and others that were just... They, they understood um, waiting before the Lord, uh, the groaning prayer. They understood the travail. Uh, and that's something else we've realized. There really is a, an interesting movement of the travailing prayer that's coming back to the church right now. I'm loving uh, hearing more and more in groups talk about, it. are we travailing before the Lord? for the in-breaking kingdom to maximize us and our opportunities and the people that we are called to reach in the neighborhoods we are called to change. And um, so, but once again, that's, that's a part of these prayers that have kind of been tucked away. They're not really under the edifying category so much, and they've been tucked away and under-practiced. And we're, so what, what we're definitely bringing back is certainly um, nothing 
nothing new. It's something that's so old that we'd kind of forgot it, that we're just remembering it again and bringing it all back to the surface. All of these are in the book and in Christian practice for such a time as this. And this is the reason, this is the season, this is the time to win back uh, that kind of boldness. Yeah, and I, and I just, the, the the posture of it, I really appreciate really what you said about, you know, you know, how, how it's not, it's, it's not the, the, the law, it is, it's, it's the gospel, it's the, the posture of our hearts, the way that we're uh, positioned, the way that we are expectant. And then like anything in, in the life of discipleship, it's like, we, we've got to, we've got to develop new muscles. We've got to exercise parts of us that we, that, that are dormant. And I think for a lot of folks in the church, this is yeah. a, this is a dormant part or they've only, they've lifted a 10 pound weight, but they really could lift a 50 or a hundred pound weight, but we've got to, you know, begin, uh, a trying and exercising and then also, uh, you know, recognizing there are some who are called to, to do this maybe even greater ways, but all of us yeah. are called to do it um, to maybe a greater degree. So, And when we get that. thrust into the front lines of mission, naturally, we begin to see, oh, man, <laughs> our prayer life needs, needs to now uh, operate out here. Uh, so it naturally pulls us into a new place of prayer, out of frustration, if nothing else. Yeah, one of the one of the chapters in the book t- talks about our willingness to wait on God, and I think it's a really instructive and important word, particularly for those of us from the uh, quote developed world. <laughs> who are not accustomed to having to wait on much of anything, uh, right. allowing God to do God's work. Um, and, and you're quoting in the book, you're, you're quoting Psalm 27, you're quoting David, but you're really calling on us to sort of let go of our, our human perspectives and so I just want to maybe, John, you could comment a little bit on y- your own experience of, of waiting upon the Lord. How was that? W- was there a period of fasting? W- you know, was there a, a whole congregational effort to, toward waiting? What, what has that looked like to you? Well, it's, you know, I think one thing I'll just sort of add to just in that little bit from that previous part is that, you know, I... I'm really formed by, I, I have, I don't have it with me handy right in front of me right here, but I have a Bible and a book of common prayer combination. And mm-hmm. I've come to see that as I've grown in my uh, faith and grown in my relationship with the Lord, that in so many ways that really defines who I am in terms of that. And so the, the practice of prayer, um, I believe in the, the, I've been in prayer meetings. I've been, you know, that have gone on for hours. I've, I've had those kinds of moments as well, but I realized that I was so much formed by um, uh, the liturgy and it became a regular cadence in my life. It became a regular sort of rhythm that that sort of uh, that I could walk to and and march to, if you will. And I really discovered that for because for a while and this is where uh, Verlin and I have some common experience. I was raised in the Episcopal Church, but for about three years, I was on staff at Mount Perrin Church of God in Atlanta. And um, so very large Pentecostal uh, out of Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. And, and, but it was there where 
you know, I had this wonderful experience of, of growing in my uh, knowledge and love of the Lord. It was an amazing place to be. But then I went back to uh, visit an Episcopal church, a very uh, spirit-filled Episcopal church in the Panhandle. And I went to the service and um, I sat there and I wept as the mm. liturgy was sort of spoken uh, over. Mm. And it's like all those things that I'd grown up with that are really Christ-centered and wonderful and strong. You know, it was that point where I just, and then just the way circumstances work, a month and a half later, I was on staff at that church in, in the Panhell, and it just sort of rebirthed that. And I share that simply because I think as we talk about the prayer and whether it's waiting on the Lord or uh, whether it's the, the those kinds of things, that we bring to this our formation, who God has made us, how he has formed us. And that's what I really mm-hmm. love about having done this work with Verlin is I really hope in ways, and it's kind of in the introduction, that we would find a harmony between us because we have different experiences. We have different backgrounds. And yet we have the same uh, goal to see his kingdom come and his will be done as in heaven, so on earth. And so yeah. I think that's that's part of it. And then when we get to this you know, experience of waiting on the Lord, you know, I've had to I've had to wait. I've had to spend that time. I always think of um, someone gave me when I was a teenager a bookmark that had Habakkuk two one through three on it, which is a classic. We don't know we don't Habakkuk probably doesn't get quoted a whole lot uh, and not preached mm-hmm. on, but it says this: I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, write it down, the revelation, make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks to the end and will not prove false. Though it lingers, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And I just think that kind of posture of waiting on the Lord and setting ourselves, maybe another way to say this, setting ourselves in a posture of reception so that I can receive from the Lord. And, and that really comes, that just isn't sort of the, the quick kind of prayers that I throw up, you know, uh, over when something comes to mind. But it's really finding this place of where I can receive what God is going to say to me. And that means getting still. I, I think I say this in the right. book that, that, you know, we have Psalm 46 where we're told to be still and know that he is God. Mm-hmm. And the opposite of that is true, I think, that if we're not still, we're not going to know that he's God. And so that God will speak to us in those kinds of moments and reveal himself and show us things. You know, we did a retreat at Canterbury at the retreat center called Dangerous Prayer. And it really focused on this idea that God reveals himself to us. There's an encounter and that leads to transformation. And that's really, I think, what that waiting on the Lord is all about. And so whether you come from a Pentecostal, you know, uh, background or whether you come from a liturgical sacramental or somewhere in between, there are all these sorts of things that, that we bring to our prayer life that God uses to shape us and form us and to, and to bring us to the point where the prayers that we pray, as Verlin said earlier, avail much for the kingdom. The, the, the fervent prayers that we pray really will change this world. And I, I believe that. And so that's why I pray. And I'm trying to teach the congregation that I serve that, that very simple truth. We started when I got there doing prayer walks. And prayer walks really uh, was something they had never done before. And they love them, you know, and, and uh, sort of the pandemic shut some of that down. Uh, we didn't do it in groups, but uh, we have continued that practice 
of um, really praying for our community and praying and God open our eyes to let us see who's here, who needs you, and how we're supposed to 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 bring the gospel uh, into this world. I'll, I'll finish with this part with this that God has really given us a picture. Part of that waiting on the Lord and listening to the Lord, He's given a picture. I serve a it's a wonderful little place called Cedar Key, Florida. It's an island in the Gulf of Mexico, and um, I so the image fits us very well. He's called us to be a lighthouse uh, in this world. And to, and that's sort of the, the metaphor, the motif that we're operating as we think about the mission and ministry that he's given us. So you are from from different traditions. John, you, you raised Episcopalian. You had a little experience in uh, a, a stream of the church that is kind of more in the holiness uh, Pentecostal movement. Verlin, you're kind of cradle uh, assemblies of God uh, experience. I'm yeah. interested since you've been working together, you worked on this book together, you talk uh, several times a week. Um, what is a gift that your brother has given you from his tradition? So, you know, what, what gifts of prayer from the more liturgical tradition Verlin has John given you and John, what gifts uh, from the, the more free church uh, Pentecostal tradition has, has Verlin given you? I'm, I'm just curious. Well, I actually received uh, a very practical version of John's big investment in that he gave me a book of prayer last time I was out in Florida with him. Um, and we talked it through and he showed me different prayers that were very um, spiritual warfare in nature and how they worked and how they prayed, what the history was associated with them. And, uh, so I brought that prayer book back and, uh, was really, uh, intrigued at how my Pentecostal trained people somehow found such interesting prayer and joy and power while praying through the book of prayer. Um, and something else that we do in Seattle is we don't feel the Lord just has given us rooms full of, uh, of, of secular peoples to begin to introduce to him and take them into Christ's likeness, but it's given us the neighborhood where they live too, if we will uh, recognize that. And if we will start to walk in the very presence of Jesus into those neighborhoods with our prayer walks. Mm -hmm. And so we take a very, in fact, one of the segments in the book, we take a real honest look at the historic prayer walk that every step you take, you are stepping the inbreaking kingdom in and the upraising kingdom of darkness has to then recede. Because when you show up, it's got to back up. We're, we're the, we're the metaphor of light. We're the ones that when we show up, darkness goes, it's not the other way around. Somebody doesn't turn on a light switch of darkness and likeness. That's not the way it works. We're the, we're the advancing ones. And uh, so for our people off, they were saying, well, man, when we're doing these prayer walks, what do we, what do we pray? I mean, we're just out of our own, wow, Lord, bless that home. Lord, we want this neighborhood to be full of you and, you know, on and on and on. And, and some were just really intrigued with the prayer book. I want to, I'm going to walk and I'm going to pray the prayers in this prayer book while we're walking. So that's been a significant investment that John has made uh, to us, not to mention just a very deep, deep root. I mean, our denomination is 100 years old. His is over at like 1800. <laughs> it's clear back to the days of Apollotus. So way, way, way back there. And there's just some wonderful stuff out of that taproot that has demonstrated such a willingness on the part of ancient, ancient fathers in the faith 
being willing to go eyeball to eyeball against the strong man, expecting to win, and they clearly did. I just want to just piggyback before you answer, John, because I think, you know, Verlin's referring to a, a, a portion of the book, you know, for our listeners, I think it's around page 42 or something where you, you describe the rogation days. So kind of these, yeah. this ancient term, this, the, the, what rogation means, it means to ask. And then, and then you talk about what is, I mean, we think about prayer walks as maybe intimidating uh, things, but you, there are, there are prayers. You literally walk and you, you, you say it's a, a service called beating the bounds, uh, yeah. going to the, the, the places in, in a town and, and praying prayers, beautifully written prayers. And I feel like, you know, if we can develop the language of prayer, which we get from the Psalms, but we get from some of these written prayers, the Book of Common Prayer is accessible to everyone. You need not be an Anglican priest to to use use it. Um, But, you know, one of the beautiful prayers here, it says, Remember not, Lord Christ, our offenses, nor the offenses of our forefathers, neither reward us according to our sins. Spare us, good Lord. Spare thy people whom thou hast redeemed with thy most precious blood, and by thy mercy preserve us forever. Spare us, good Lord. And I challenge you, you know, if you're listening and you're intimidated by some of these written prayers, you pr- start praying those things over and over and over. If you have a heart posture, not from a, a, a rote a posture, but a heart posture, you, you may just feel a difference in your <laughs> a body uh, when you when you do that, as I just did. Yeah. So, um, yes, yeah. so gift from the Anglican and Episcopal tradition to uh, our, our Pentecostal friend in the, in the Book of Common Prayer. So now, uh, John, what, what have you gleaned as a gift uh, from Verlin? Well, uh, many, many things, but I, you can't just set me up like that and let me not comment just for a moment. <laughs> sure. So, so a couple of things. One is that we need to realize that sometimes we think that we discover all these things. You know, um, in a lot of the fresh expressions world that we live in, you know, we talk about prayer walks a lot. Well, prayer walks, you can talk about beating of the bounds, this idea of, of walking a, a territory, walking the bounds of a parish. That's where it kind of comes from. That dates back to the fifth century in France. And then England really took it over as a, as a part of their world. And so you can Google beating the bounds and you'll see services that come up. And so I think there's that reality is that, that it's really recapturing. And so much of this, and this is kind of maybe a dinner church plug a little bit, is that it's recapturing the authentic mission of the church, which for, yeah. for the first few centuries was around the table, you know, yeah. uh, and around a dinner table not just the Eucharistic table or the communion table. So anyway, that's kind of an aside a little bit. When I think of, of as I worked with Verlin on this, and as we've uh, worked together in the dinner church world, his persistent prayer, I think that he lives out the parables, you know, of the widow demanding a, uh, you know, the um, outcome for a judge to give her uh, an outcome, the parable that Jesus tells her, or the person who comes late at night looking for bread, uh, for neighbors, you know, kind of thing that, that those prayers that Jesus, the parables that Jesus tells us, tells in order to encourage us to be persistent in prayer. Verlin has really done that. I think that's part of his, um, his own formation. I think with that comes a, 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 a you know, a deliberate kind of, of prayer about the mission of the church in today's world, because without those kinds of things, without those types of prayers fueling our mission, 
I don't think we're, we, we are as fruitful as we can be. And that's, yeah. that's why the call to prayer as the starting point, you know, we talk about that. We talk about five circles. We talk about, we begin with listening and then go back to that posture of listening and receiving. And I think Verlin really lives that and illustrates that. And then I think that just the, um, you know, praying with the, the, in the spirit and uh, with those deep groans that the spirit gives us, you know, and, and doing that. So I think in some ways, I guess I could say it this way is that Verlin has um, resurrected in me uh, those, some of that Pentecostal, some of that charismatic kind of expression. And uh, for that, I am grateful and thankful for uh, his influence in my life uh, as we, as we journey together. And, and, and in this, we have the best of that. I'm reminded of, of something. I think it was Sandy Miller told me one time. He said, uh, we've got to have a fireplace for the fire to burn inside of. So in, in, in some respects, the, you know, your tradition of prayer, John, is that fireplace. And then it enables the fire of the, the persistent widow or the persistent Verlin to burn um, without uh spreading and and doing uh harm if i'm if i may say because i think there are some yeah. people who've, who've experienced prayer that has uh been so persistent it might have kind of been perceived as as burdensome or overbearing but you know here yeah. here we have in this book which you should all uh, go out and and buy uh a a picture of the whole church coming together in reverence uh, for one another, reverent, reverent to the tradition, the historicity of the church, and then um, the, the fervor of, uh, you know, the revival movements of, of 100 years ago um, that, that sprang up, uh, even on the West Coast. I mean, you're, you're an heir <laughs> of, of some of that old Azusa, that Azusa Street revival, yeah. right, Verlin? Yeah, um, come right up the coastline. Yeah, yeah. it did. It mm-hmm. did. So I'm I'm delighted to just say. So if you're if you're um, intimidated by prayer, if you want to take your congregation through a, a, a process of learning to pray more fervently, more boldly, this is a great place to start. Um, and then you know, Verlin and John are working on additional materials, retreats. Um, events and that sort of thing to kind of help build prayer capacity within your team, within your congregation. I know it's something that we're doing in, in our congregation now is really building prayer capacity. And, and I'm, I'm thankful that you, you both are out there helping us know how to live on the front lines. So uh, thank you both for, for being with us, for sharing time, for collaborating on such an important project. Again, uh, the book is A Trowel and a Sword. Uh, you can uh, get that on uh, freshexpressions.com. And John, you have one more thing you, you're desperate to say. I think, you know, we didn't talk about it. Why a trowel and a sword? Where uh-huh. does that come from? Yeah. And I think this is probably a good way to sort of wrap this up a little bit, is that we see this picture in Nehemiah chapter 4 where, you know, Nehemiah has this call. It's a, it's a study in leadership. It's a study about prayer, repentance, all these wonderful kinds of things that happen in Nehemiah. But in chapter four, they're building the wall and the surrounding tribes are not happy about it. And so they're being attacked and, and they're trying to prevent uh, these returning uh, Jews from building the wall around Jerusalem. And so mm-hmm. Nehemiah stations people on the wall 
with, he says, and they work with one hand and they have a, a weapon in the other. So that's that picture of a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And so the posture of our prayer really has that kind of, of um, that image is just, I think, such a powerful one for us is that we want to build up. We want to encourage. We want to support. We want to uh, you know, do, invite people in. We want to do those things. And we, that's with the trowel and with the sword, we're going to fight off the enemy. We're going to fight off yeah. those that are trying to, to rob, kill, and destroy. And, and yeah. that's the posture, I think, of every believer, um, every follower of Christ that, that we need to have in this day and age. As we think about the remaking of the mission of the church, as we think about those things. And so a trowel and a sword, that's where that comes from. So read Nehemiah. Uh, read the whole thing. But chapter 4 is where you'll find that image. And I think it's a powerful one for as we think about what are we calling people to. We're calling people to, to have those two things in their hands. And, uh, and that's a real, um, I think, just the, the, the basic foundation and such a powerful image that will inspire us in our prayer lives. Earl and John, thanks so much for being with us. Until next time, you grace bet. and peace. Blessings. This is the Fresh Expressions Podcast. Fresh Expressions is a worldwide movement of everyday missionaries who want to see churches thrive in the places we eat, play, work, and yes, even in our traditional churches. To learn a simple five-phase process for starting a new expression of church, go to freshexpressionsus.org backslash how to start. The Fresh Expressions podcast is hosted by Gannon Sims and me, Heather Delod. It's edited by Joel Limbaum and produced by Kathleen Blackie and Chris Morton. Our national director is Dr. Christopher Backert. If you've learned something or been encouraged by this podcast, please help us spread the word. You can give us a review on Apple Music or Spotify and share this episode on social media. Now, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that God's ways may be known on earth your salvation among all nations.